This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Reza Aslan. He's the founder of Aslan Media, a scholar of religions and professor of creative writing at the University of California at Riverside. I spoke with him on October 28, 2014, from Calliopeia Studio at On Being on Loring Park. He was in the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Download the MP3 of my produced show with Reza Aslan at onbeing.org. Yeah, I can hear Okay, we are here and present and accounted for. That's great. Um, hi, Reza, can you hear me? I sure can. How it's are you? It's so good to meet you. It's great to meet you, too. I'm, I'm such a fan of your work and, and a great fan of the show. I'm so glad to be on it. Well, that means a lot. And I, you know, I've been, I knew, I knew we'd, I'd want to have you, I knew we'd, we'd get you at some point and I just want moment is right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, but, You know, because I usually don't, I don't generally do book, I mean, I really don't, as a rule, do do book, um, do, do people on book tour, and you mm-hmm. publish so much, but I wanted to, and you know, and so what I, and what I don't want to do today is talk about Bill Maher or, you know, um, Sam Harris, but what I, I just feel like it's such an interesting moment to talk about um our collective encounter with religion in general and Islam in particular, you know, over this past decade and a half. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that I just feel like you're going to be a, a wonderful person to do that, kind of pull back the lens, you know, from this the, from this news cycle. I mean, again, this stuff may come in, but but really speak about this moment in time, this century in time and, and your life and your writing as kind of a, a prism. That sounds great. I'm, I'm happy to talk about anything. Although, uh, you know, I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, my interest is in religion uh-huh. and Islam just happens to be. As a scholar of Islam, when in fact I'm a scholar of religion. Uh-huh. Right. And I and I and that's right. And but it's also true that Islam um has been very much at the center, you know, for <laughs> for difficult for sure. reasons of our for kind sure. of encounter um, and it's certainly with Americans waking up to religion as force in the world in general. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, and I think you're right in the center of that. Um, okay, Chris, great. We sound great. <laughs> then let, let's get going. Are you going to stand going. for 90 minutes? Uh-huh. Sure. You're going to get tired. No, that's okay. I've you sure? sitting most of the time. Okay, all right. <laughs> it's going to be a nice respite from being in front of the computer. Okay, sounds good. Okay. Uh-huh. We're all set over here, it looks like. Um, so... So you may know that I always start my interviews by asking about the religious and spiritual background um, of your childhood. How, where would you start to tell that story? I was born in Iran. I like to sometimes joke that I come from a long line of lukewarm Muslims and exuberant atheists. Yeah, right. Uh, My mother was the lukewarm Muslim, my father the exuberant atheist, the... uh, kind of atheist who always had a pocket full of Prophet Muhammad jokes that he would pull out at inappropriate times, <laughs> that kind of atheist. Right. Um, in a sense that my father's atheism actually ended up uh, serving us well because if you recall in the revolution of 1979 when the Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran, he made a great uh, show of 
pretending that he had no interest in any politics or government position. He said that he wanted to just simply go back to his home and his mosque and his family and be left alone. My father, who's never trusted anyone wearing a turban, hmm. uh, didn't believe him for a minute and thought that it would be a good idea for us to leave Iran until things settled down. That, of course, was three decades ago and things did not settle down and yeah. Turns out my father was right about Khomeini, which he reminded me on a daily basis until the day of his death. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, somewhere you wrote um, that after Iran, after you left Iran, our lives were scrubbed of all trace of God. Well, this was the 1980s, of course. Yeah. It wasn't uh, exactly the best time in the world to be a Muslim in the United States, as opposed to now when it's fantastic. That's right. That well, was... what was going on? What, 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 what did you feel was against you in the 1980s? Well, this was, of course, the height of the Iran hostage crisis. Oh, yeah. Okay. Forty-four okay. days. Mm-hmm in which uh, uh, Americans were being held hostage in Iran. And for a, a seven-year-old boy trying his hardest to fit in, it was important for me to separate myself as much as possible from my culture, my heritage, my nationality, certainly my religion. I've admitted on numerous occasions that I spent a good part of the 1980s pretending to be Mexican. Uh, <laughs> Somehow which, I missed that in my preparations. <laughs> well, and, and that probably will tell you how little I understood about America thinking that people would treat me better if I yeah. said I was Mexican, because that did not happen. Right, right. <laughs> um, and then you've also written, and especially um, in your last book, you, you know, you've written about this period in which you, as I believe as a teenager, you, you, you discovered Christianity and you, you right. heard the gospel stories and that, you know, you've said that, that this for the first time gave you a framework and a language to express a sense of spiritual longing that you'd, that you'd always had. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it because I think the experience of revolutionary Iran really seared into my consciousness, even as a child, the power that religion has to transform a society for good and for bad. And although I didn't really grow up with any kind of religious instruction, we were not that religious in Iran. And certainly by the time we came to the United States, we put aside uh, any sort of overt religiosity that we may or may not have had. I was always deeply fascinated by religion, religious phenomenology, religious history, uh, religious philosophy, and, and spirituality. I mean, even as a child, these things were uh, incredibly interesting to me, despite the fact that I never really had an opportunity to explore them in any kind of meaningful way. And then when I went to high school, when I was 15 years old, I went with some friends uh, to an evangelical youth camp in Northern California, and it was there that I first heard the gospel story, this incredible story about the God of heaven and earth coming down in the form of a child, uh, of, of dying for our sins, the promise that anyone who believed in him would also never die but have eternal life. I had never heard anything like this before in my life. It was a transformative experience for me. I immediately converted to this particularly conservative brand of evangelical Christianity and then spent the next four or five years or so preaching that gospel as I had heard it to everyone, <laughs> whether they wanted to hear it or not, frankly. Including your, I was what is, your lukewarm Muslim yeah. mother? <laughs> Even my lukewarm Muslim mother, right. whom I converted to Christianity. Did you and, really? And who to the, yes, and who to this day is a, uh, a, a devout uh, believing Christian. 
That is so interesting. <laughs> now, and then, but at some point, you no longer identified as Christian. Did you, and so I don't know if you, you know, you, you've said that you've, you've made the distinction that people think of you as a Muslim scholar. In fact, you are a scholar, you're a scholar of religion and a scholar not, not merely of Islam. Um, but was there, was there a way in which you rediscovered Islam um, in, in some sense, either spiritually or, or um, as a scholar? It was a gradual process. It began, first of all, by sitting in church, hearing the preacher, um, you know, talk about um, the Bible and about what God wants for me. And unlike my friends, I have to say, I've never been the kind of person to just take a person, you know, someone's word for something. Uh, I would go home and I would read these Bible passages and I would discover that the Bible was far more complex than my pastor was making it out to be, that in some cases he was just flat out wrong about what the, the, the gospels or the scripture was saying about a particular subject. And in many cases, uh, what the gospels or the scripture was saying could be understood in multiple ways right. and not necessarily in the way that the uh, pastor was presenting it. When I would go to church or go to my Bible groups and bring up some of these questions and doubts, I thought that what I would was doing was starting a conversation. And instead, what I noticed was that it was a conversation stopper. And in mm. fact, mm. it was often the case that uh, I would be responded to uh, negatively. In fact, on more than one occasion, I had people pray over me in order to remove the doubts and the questions that I had. As I say, this was a very yeah. conservative evangelical Yeah, it's a certain religious church. world. This is absolutely. certainly a religious world I knew from my childhood. Yes, so. absolutely. But everyone that, won't, it, it won't be familiar to everyone. Precisely. Yeah. It's one that does not by any means reflect uh, what you know most mainstream Christians uh, experience. And that's the great irony. Because I was introduced to Christ in a evangelical fundamentalist environment, it provided precisely the seeds of my walking away from the religion. Mm. When I went to university and decided that I was going to study uh, the New Testament for a living, that I was going to be a Bible scholar, that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life, I was confronted with this reality that almost everything that I thought I knew about the Bible, everything that I thought I knew about Jesus was incomplete, if not just incorrect, that not only was there a great chasm between the Jesus of history as I was learning about him at university and the Christ of faith as I had been taught about him in church, but more importantly, as you know, Krista, the foundation of fundamentalist evangelical Christianity is that the Bible is literal and inerrant. And mm -hmm. it only takes about five minutes to realize how false that statement is, that the Bible is actually riddled with the most obvious and understandable um, errors. And this is the irony that I was speaking of. Had I been introduced to Christianity in a more mainstream church, that knowledge, that realization would not have affected me in the slightest. Mm, so this but kind because, of pulled the rug out from under. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. the entire foundation was built on this false premise. When that premise proved to be false, the entire thing crumbled. Mm -hmm. Yet... Were you still in interested? Did you still find that you? I mean, I'm interested in like you know where are the roots of um, 
you know, even with that story, you know, how, how did you come to understand yourself as someone who, whose passion, whose, whose, whose scholarly passion would be about writing and speaking and kind of curating parts of our cultural discussion about religion, our cultural knowledge about religion? And, and again, you know, where did Islam come back? You know, as you right. grappled with Christianity, did, did your Muslim identity, did, did understanding that better or your, mm-hmm. your Muslim past, did that, did that come to seem interesting in a new way? Well, a couple of things happened. I went to a um, Catholic Jesuit university. And so what was amazing to me was as my sort of belief in evangelical Christianity began to crumble, the sort of Catholic conception of Christianity was there for me to land on right, <laughs> as right, kind of a, right. a, a soft space. The understanding that, well, this particular interpretation is wrong, but the belief system itself is still valuable and true, um, w- was something that that worked as a kind of transition for me. Yeah. And at the same time, of course, what I was learning was about what religion itself is, that religion is not faith, that it's that it's the language that that a community of faith uses to uh, communicate with each other, the ineffable experience of faith. And that most importantly, when you study the world's religions, what you realize very quickly is that they're all pretty much saying the same thing, but using a different language of symbols and metaphors to do so. And so what happened to me was this sudden realization that spiritually I had not changed. I still believed in God. I still had a fulfilling and active spiritual uh, life. But that the metaphors that were Mm. provided to me by Christianity were no longer satisfactory and that I was hungry for a different set of metaphors to ground my spirituality in. And interestingly enough, it was the Jesuits at my university themselves who, recognizing this in me, encouraged me to delve back into the faith of my forefathers. Your, I knew your nothing. mother tongue. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I, that's precisely yeah. it. I knew yeah. nothing about Islam. I'd never yeah. read the Quran. I don't remember ever going to a mosque. Mm. And, you know, they, they gave me some books to look at and some ideas to, to ponder upon. And what I discovered was a language of symbols and metaphors that reflected what I already believed mm. about God and the relationship between the creator and creation about my place in the world. Again, I want to emphasize this. It's not as though I read about Islam and then adopted those beliefs. I read about Islam and realized I already believed this and that here was a a group of symbols, a group of metaphors that helped me express to myself and to other people what I already believed. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like it was like read, it was like home homecoming. Sounds like it was. So mm-hmm. I often joke that I had an emotional conversion to Christianity, but an intellectual conversion to Islam. Mm-hmm. But that's very true. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the, you know, yeah, I, I I I love the way you're talking about about you know, and, and it's yes, it's it's the traditions have different languages, but also different. It's it's practice and language, right? It's these whole worlds of thought that's and right. being. Um, and that multiplicity of practice and language is so completely fascinating and defining. I mean, you, you've also said it this way. You've said religion, it must be understood, is not faith. 
it is the story of faith. And right. and I, I, I'd love to draw you out f- for a little while here about um, the story of Islam, which you um, really laid out in this very expansive way in your 2005 book, No God But God. Was that, it was 2005 was the first publishing, That's is that right? right? Yeah. yeah. Um, now, you know, as you know, <laughs> as well, better than I do, um, Islam was there in the world as this religion of over a billion people at the turn of the century. It was on its way to being the second largest religious faith in the United States. But in this very spectacularly dramatic and tragic way, um, many people were introduced to Islam, right? Or many Americans first began to think about Islam through those events um, on September 11th. And what I think has been so important about your work these last years is really pulling back the lens and kind of telling the story of this faith. And, and, you know, crazily, you know, these years later, over a decade later, I feel like so much of this story, people are still learning. It's still new or it hasn't been told or it's been told in a in a distorted way. So I, I wondered if, you, if we take that idea that, you know, that re- to understand religion is not, to, not faith, it's the story of the faith. You know, where would you just want to begin telling the story of this faith in terms of what you feel people um, now still, still it would be good for them to understand in order to make sense of now? I think that the most uh, misunderstood aspect of Islam, the greatest misperception about Islam is simply that there is something different or unique about Islam. And there isn't. There's nothing different. There's nothing unique. There's nothing extraordinary about Islam as a global religion. It's a religion like any other religion. It, it is privy to the exact same uh, cultural and, and historical and uh, literary influences that have affected every religion in the world. It is as diverse as any other great global religion like Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism. Uh, it is understood and lived in a diverse and eclectic array of experiences. There is, and I can't emphasize this enough, nothing different about it. And yet, in the minds of Americans, uh, Islam is the quintessential other. It's about as it's become actually a byword for everything that's foreign and exotic, everything that's unfamiliar and fearsome. Uh, for the vast majority of Americans who have a negative view about Islam, they couldn't really tell you anything about the religion at all. It's just uh, a code word for other. And so any story of Islam has to begin with that fundamental fact, a fact, by the way, that Muslims are just as guilty as non-Muslims for propagating. And that fact is there is nothing extraordinary, nothing different, nothing unique about Islam as a world religion, and we have to stop thinking about it that way. It's, but it, but it is, it is, it does sound like a provocative statement, right? Um, on a few levels, it shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know what? I mean, just to take it apart. I mean, for, I mean, for one thing, when you say there's nothing different, I mean, but but there it. Each of these, it is it has its distinctives, right? It has its defining distinctives. Um, oh, certainly. But what I mean to say is that yes. as a religion, mm-hmm. as a religion that is 
a lived experience, is a history. As of this thing in history that, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. There's nothing different about it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing unusual about it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's an important thing to keep in mind because you hear this a lot, particularly from the, the growing anti-theist movement, particularly in the United States. All religions are awful, but Islam is worse. Yeah. Well, there's nothing really that different. You know, if you hate all religions, you should hate Islam just as equally. It, it's not worse or better. It's just a religion like any other religion. And I think that's that's probably the biggest message that I could give to uh, an American audience. So you, um, you, I think rightly, um, when you kind of start telling the sweep of the story of this faith, um, you know, you you don't just you go back to. Uh, the beginnings, the life of the Prophet right. Muhammad, those early centuries. Well, even before then. And even, even before then. And, but, and you also point out, I mean, I think to the point you just made, um, you know, what, I, what I've sometimes pointed out to people is that Islam is uh, six or seven hundred years, seven hundred years younger than Christianity, right? Seven. Why am I blanking uh, out about, on this? About yeah. six hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, six hundred years younger than Christianity and six hundred years ago, roughly, Christians were waging global holy wars and uh, burning heretics at the stake. I mean, I, you know, it's to the point you just made. I mean, that is that is the kind of dynamic in the life of global religions that you're talking about. Um, that Christianity has also, at another time, um, gone through uh, comparable trauma that also lasted generations and generations and generations. Well, that's certainly true um, that all great religions um, deal with the same uh, conflicts of politics and violence and and the uh, struggle to reconcile with the realities of a changing, evolving and, and modern world. Um, I don't think, however, that we should let Christianity off the hook because it's no longer slaughtering at the great numbers that it was 500 years ago. There's still an enormous amount of violence in the name of Christianity. Indeed, even in the United States, at, you know, with our own uh, – the words of our own president in launching the war on terror, which was in his view uh, overtly an evangelical crusade uh, that was steeped uh, in, the, in the bloodiest rhetoric of Christian militarism and, and that, that rhetoric which very easily uh, spilled over into – um, the American military and particularly the Air Force Academy, um, which I've written about a lot in my second book, Beyond Fundamentalism. But nevertheless, you're right in that these historical, contextual influences are not unique to any one religion. Going back to your original question, of course, uh, part of the reason why I started the uh, the book about Islam and the, and the origins of the religion mm -hmm. uh, 300 years before the birth of Islam, and I do the same thing with uh, Christianity and, and uh, uh, when I – in my book uh, Zealot about Jesus, right. is that I think there's this m misunderstanding uh, amongst most people of faith that 
prophets sort of grow up in some kind of cultural or religious vacuum, that a, a prophet is somebody that just plopped down to earth from heaven and with a, with a ready-made message uh, in which they, have, they found a brand new religion. But prophets don't invent religions. Prophets are reformers of the religions that they themselves grow up in. Jesus right, did right. not invent Christianity. Jesus was a Jew. He was reforming Judaism. Mm-hmm. The prophet Muhammad did not invent Islam. The Quran over and over again reminds believers that this is not a new religion. This is not a new message. This is the exact same message that was given to all the prophets that came before you, the Quran says, from Adam to Jesus all the way to the prophet Muhammad. The Buddha did not invent Buddhism. The Buddha was a Hindu. He was reforming mm-hmm. Hinduism. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that our prophets are intimately connected to the worlds out of which they arise. And so for me, when I write about the origins of particular religions, it's very important to recognize um, how seamless that transition from the era before and during and after the prophet actually is. And that's certainly the case with the prophet Muhammad. Um, you know, I, I, I've experienced in these years speaking with Muslims that um, that the notion of Islam needing a reformation or just really the language of reformation is doesn't work for a lot of people that, you know, and certainly what doesn't work is Christians saying, well, what Islam needs, what Muslims need is, you know, they need to have a reformation like we had a reformation. Um, I, you know, but I noticed that you do, do that you do use that language and you you make this interesting suggestion that, you know, you, you say it this way, that, that the reformation, that a reformation ha- within Islam has been taking place already for nearly a century, that the Islamic reformation is already here. We are living in it. So so tell me what you what you see what you're describing when you make that statement. Well, I think people have an erroneous view of what reformation means, which is probably why it's such a loaded term and why so many Muslims, I think, reject the idea because there's this impression that what it refers to is that there's something wrong with Islam that needs correcting. Well, or I think is, also that there's some kind of blueprint, you know, I mean, he, he, that 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 it should be done exactly the way Christians did it. And it's also said without much historical perspective on how it really worked. Yeah, well, right? con- <laughs> considering that the Christian Reformation led to the death of half the population of Germany alone, yeah, I certainly hope right, right. that's not the, the There's not a lot of memory about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, But I think you're okay. I mean, yeah, but I mean, I like I like the way you were just talking about reformation. I mean, clearly you are you're you're putting a lot into that language that's not in right. a, in a casual casual use of the word. Yeah, well, reformation is not a positive or a negative judgment. It just is, and mm. in fact, it's a universal phenomenon in all great institutionalized religious traditions. When we use the term reformation, what we mean is the fundamental conflict that is inherent in all religious traditions, as I say, between who gets to define the faith, who has the authority 
to define the faith? Is it the institution or is it the individuals? That was ultimately what the Christian Reformation was about. In the United States, we refer to it as the Protestant Reformation, as though this was some sort Mm -hmm. of conflict between Protestant reform and Catholic intransigence, and by golly, the Protestants won. (laughs) Uh, But of course, that's not what happened. This was Martin Luther's another one who just wanted to be a better Catholic, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And and by the way, who who was absolutely uh, bloodily unforgiving of any fellow reformer who happened to disagree with his particular interpretation <laughs> of yes, what that well, there's reform that would be. Too. Yeah. Um, when we look at this as a universal phenomenon, a process whereby either gradually or as the result of some dramatic societal stress. Uh, The authority to define a faith passes from the hands of institutions to the hands of individuals. What we always see as a result, without exception, is profound violence. When you say that an individual should be able to interpret a faith however he or she wants to, then of course you are opening up a can of proverbial worms, if you will. Mm -hmm. What you are saying then is that every interpretation is now equally valid. And the result, of course, is not just a cacophony of voices, but uh, a situation whereby it's usually the loudest and most violent voices that tend to carry the day. Mm. That process of reformation The passing of institutional authority into individual hands has been uh, taking place in in Islam for a century, really since the the twilight of the colonial era in which the ulema, the religious authorities, which for 14 centuries have maintained an absolute grip, a monopoly over the meaning and message of Islam, primarily because they were the only ones who could read the Quran to begin with Mm – that that authority began to crumble as we saw widespread access to new and and novel sources of information, dramatic increases in literacy and education across the Middle East and the larger Muslim world. Um, and of course, a heightening sense of individualism, which was a direct result of the colonial That's experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what that what what took place as a result of those factors was individuals, some of them quite prominent individuals, who began to reject the top-down authority of Islam, who had the ability to go to the Quran themselves, to read it in their own languages. And I should remind your audience that the Quran has been translated into more languages in the last 50 years than in the previous 1,500 years combined. Mm -hmm. And now anyone can just simply go to the text for themselves. This is you know, what Martin Luther dreamed of when he said sola yes. scriptura, yes. without mediation, without an imam or a member of the ulema telling them what the text means, and they can come up with their own interpretations. And of course, as what as necessarily happens in this kind of situation, what you have as a result 
are individualistic interpretations that promote peace and tolerance and feminism and democracy. And you have individualistic interpretations that promote violence and misogyny and hatred and terror. And because Islam, a religion of 1.6 billion people, the second largest religion in the world, has no centralized religious authority. There is no Muslim pope. There is no, no Muslim Vatican. No one can say who is and who is not a proper Muslim, what is and what is not proper Islamic behavior. What you have is just a shouting match between all of these individual, individualized interpretations fighting amongst each other while also fighting amongst the institutions of the Muslim world. The Islamic Reformation has been going on for decades. We just look at the Muslim world, we see violence, and we don't realize that that violence is a direct result of the Reformation, not proof that one is needed. Right, right. Very interesting. You know, I mean, just reading your story, I'm so struck also by how your personal history has intersected with this. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, you describe, as you say, you were born in Iran. You describe leaving Iran with your family as part of this frantic mob, you know, with this sense that the borders might close any minute and the airplanes be grounded. Um, but before that, you know, uh, going out into the streets with your sister when Ayatollah Khamenei came back to Iran and joining people who were singing and dancing and shouting about freedom and liberty and democracy. I mean, you know, today uh, that that Iranian revolution is, uh, you know, one of the, I suppose, one of the symbols for many people in the West of what you know of yeah. of the reactionary islam but in fact it was it was it was very much a part of that dynamic of the end of colonialism um yeah right and that kind of the cycle that we do as human beings of reform and pushback and you know it's what we're seeing in egypt now um but as you're saying as you say um there's a much bigger picture here of uh histor- of a historical trajectory um, that has many chapters yet to be yet to be um, yet to unfold. Um, if we can just get a bigger perspective on it, that's right. And I think that that's what I mean when I say that there's nothing unique or different about Islam as a global religion. And I think looking around the world and seeing the way that. Uh, Muslims are living their experience of their faith in enormous diversity and eclecticism in which Muslim-majority states are trying to reconcile religion and religious identity with the necessities of a modern constitutional state, uh, one that uh, it, adheres to fundamental human rights and, and women's rights, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, to the very discussions taking place, you know, in individual mosques between young people and, and an older generation, uh, younger generations who are, as I say, no longer willing to uh, let. Uh, imams uh, define for themselves uh, what this religion is about and want to do it on their own. And that to me, of course, is very exciting. I mean we're watching right. this incredibly um, trans- transformational moment in what will soon be the largest religion in the world right before our eyes. And of course, you know, it's attended to with with conflict and violence and, and often bloodshed uh, because these are complicated arguments. They are about people's very identities and of course they're going to be steeped 
uh, in in violence. It's it's in many ways hard to avoid when you think about it. Um, yeah. At the same time, it's an exciting time to be alive. It's an exciting time to watch this moment of history unfurl before our eyes, especially for those of us who spend their lives writing about ancient history. To be <laughs> right. able to be a part of that history is is it's quite thrilling. I don't I don't mean this in a, in a flippant way. I mean it, there is a lot to be concerned about, but yeah. I do think that we need to have, as you say, a much more uh, broad historical perspective about what's taking place in large parts of the Muslim world. But the the, the tricky thing is, that, you know, even as you know, to to say that there's nothing unusual in in the in the broad sweep of things in this trajectory of Islam as a global religion, as a human institution, even you might say, um, uh, it is happening. This this particular this reformation uh, is has has burst onto the surface of world events in the twenty first century in right. a globalized world. So in a globalized right, world so, with twenty four hour news, yeah, and with twenty four hour immediate news, immediate access. Exactly. With, you know, with globalized communications, with globalized transportation, globalized weapons. Right. So. So, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, Christianity's century of bloodshed that accompanied that transition, um, um, you know, Islam's internal crisis, Islam's ferment, Islam's reformation, whatever you want to call it. In, in, um, becomes everyone's <laughs> ferment right. crisis reformation, right. and that that is different. Um, it adds this level, and and then and then added to that, you have the fact that uh, even in this world of twenty four seven communications and all the media we have, we, I mean, the public, ordinary citizens, are not hearing, are not privy to those searching discussions between generations in mosques. Right? They are only hearing the loudest voices um, and seeing. Uh, the destructive acts um, of, of of extreme people right. which make the news. Well, that part is not that unusual. I mean, that's really the purpose of the media. I don't want to go on a tangent here, but uh, you know, as a member of the media, I can tell you that that's really what we do. Uh, you know, it, I'm sorry to say that a a conversation among you know a progressive Muslim alliance about the role of um, gender and sexuality in uh, in religious life is not news. That's not yeah, something that right. CNN is interested in. Right. Um, someone cutting off someone else's head—that's news. Yeah. Uh, someone once said that. You know, the the media only reports on the planes that crash, not the planes that <laughs> right. take off successfully. And so, mm-hmm. if the only thing you knew about planes is what you saw in the media, you would assume every plane crashes, and so it's yeah, and, natural. And I, I think, think, and I do think, the issue now is that in this moment where we are so saturated with news, right, where the news comes at us twenty four seven, and it's the same bad news over and over. I think people right. do internalize the bad news stories as the norm, and you know, and particularly in terms of Islam, the Muslim world, right? Um, there is no question that, about that. those right. images all are are being internalized as the norm. Well, and then it becomes very, very easy to then look at an image of a Muslim on TV and apply that to, you know, the Muslim living down the street from you because you know nothing else. But I do think that in that truth is also the answer because as 
any social psychologist will tell you, minds are not changed. Perceptions are not transformed by data. I think that there is this um, knee-jerk response, particularly from liberals, uh, to bigotry, where they will say that, well, bigotry, it's just a, a result of ignorance and that if uh, if you just simply gave a bigot uh, proper information, he would no longer be a bigot. That's a nice idea. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. Bigotry is not the result Very of cerebral. ignorance. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Bigotry is the result of fear. Mm-hmm. Which is a And God fear thing. is impervious to data. Yeah. Uh, you could you show all the numbers that you want to and, you know, about the, the reality of of Muslims and Islamic life around the world and it wouldn't really make a difference because the, the the person who has these anti-Muslim sentiments is reacting from a place of fear. And so the only answer therefore is uh, to replace that fear with relationships. You know, we are at a point right now in the United States in which anti-Muslim sentiment is at unprecedented levels. Nearly six out of ten Americans have a negative view of Islam. But even more remarkably is that less than four out of ten Americans claim to have ever met a Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense. Only one percent of the population of America is Muslim. Uh, which I always sort of laugh about when you hear this kind of uh, breathless response from the anti-Muslim fringe about the impending Muslim takeover of America. Uh, that you know, my yeah. my argument is, well, you know, let's wait until we're at two percent, and then we'll talk about taking over. <laughs> right. uh, but at one percent, we still have some ways to go. Um, but nevertheless, I think that when and this has been proven by study after study. When you get to know someone of another faith, of another ethnicity, of another culture as a human being, then it dissolves that fear, that sense of otherization um, that one has because you can't help but know the person as struggling with the same things that you struggle with, having the same aspirations that you have. Um, And so I do think that that slow, steady process whereby uh, people begin to know more and more Muslims, recognize Islam as uh, a, a part of the religious fabric of this country, that that is going to be what ultimately offsets the overwhelmingly negative response that Americans have towards Muslims. It's going to take a while. But I do want to also say that it's inevitable. I mean we should always remember that everything that is being said about Muslims in the United States – that they're for it, that they're not like us, that they don't share our values, that they can't – you can't possibly be both a Muslim and an American. Everything that is being said about Muslims in America right now was said about Jews in the interwar period, was said about Catholics at the end of the 19th century. I mean right. we passed right. laws in this country to curb Catholic immigration in the United States. It was very common at the beginning of the 19th at – begin, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century – uh, for people to simply say that you can't be Catholic in America. How could you have uh, loyalty to both the Pope and the President, to the Vatican and the United right. States? I mean, well, we have a Catholic school system because we didn't trust them to teach our children. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the I mean, the level of anti-Semitism that we saw in the 20s and 30s in this country, I mean, there's no amount of anti-Muslim sentiment could ever reach that level of anti-Semitism. And yet... 
both Catholics and Jews are very much a part of the religious fabric of the United States today, not because Americans learned more about Catholicism or Judaism, but because Americans simply got to know more Jews and Catholics. You know, I, I, I'm I, thinking as we're talking about speaking um, right after 9-11 with Ingrid Mattson, who a convert to Islam, um, who at that point had become the first female vice president of the Islamic Society of North America. and Ultimately the president. And ultimately well. the president the following year. But I remember her saying, um, her, she and others talking about how at that, at that turn of the century, um, you know, so, so many Muslims came to the United States, as did so many people of all kinds of other diversity after the 1965 immigration mm-hmm. laws were changed and people from other parts of the world than Europe um, started to come here in different numbers. And, the, you know, uh, people talking about how, you know, the generations, you know, you now had the ge- generations coming to adulthood um, who were going to start to be mainstream leaders, you know, this kind of organically integrated into American life as citizens and professional people, um, as you're describing. And then, um, so, you know, so many people felt like Muslims were just on this cusp of of that. And then 9-11 happened, and it was just this terrible, terrible, terrible setback to that. Well, it was a setback to the perception of Muslims. I mean, the reality, the data speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you were there. That would. How were you? How was? How did you experience? How old were you then on nine eleven? Uh, oh boy! Uh, I guess, I guess like I was, thirty, something like this. Yeah, about almost thirty. Yeah. less than thirty. Yeah. less than thirty. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I, I remember it quite clearly, and remember. Uh, recognizing immediately what was about to happen and recognizing also that I was going to have to be at the forefront of trying to push back against um, the uh, rabid anti-Muslim sentiment that occurred in the United States. I do, however, want to just clarify one misperception about that. Mm -hmm. I think that because 9-11 happened so long ago, we don't really remember the the reality of what happened, which is that this nation did not descend into Islamophobic violence. On the contrary, what right. you saw, right. what you saw in the in the months immediately after nine eleven, was this country rallying to Muslims, the yeah. government rallying to Muslims. In fact. The argument that I heard as I was advising the national terrorism organizations, the co- co- various Congress people, over and over again what I heard was that, look, if we are actually engaged in a war of ideas, then the best weapon in our arsenal yeah. is the millions of Muslims in the United States who have perfectly integrated themselves into this culture, that have assimilated fully and have achieved enormous success here, yeah. that they have to be at the front lines of this argument. It really wasn't – and by the way, if anyone is interested in this issue, the Center for American Progress did a multi-year study on it called Fear, Inc. Hmm. And you can read this online. It really wasn't until about 2005, 2006 that as a result of a concerted effort – by a small handful of individuals and organizations uh, to change the narrative, to uh, really create a sense in this country that Muslims are an internal enemy, a, a, a threat to the very foundation of the United States, that the 
uh, popular sentiment towards Muslims began to tank and the Washington Post has proven this. They've taken a, an annual uh, rating on America's views about Muslims and every year that view has gotten worse and worse and in fact now by their numbers, uh, that 60 percent or so is about 12, 13 percent higher than in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. So we have to be very careful. This isn't just a slow, organic, evolving process whereby Americans started becoming more and more Islamophobic. It was the respon- the, a response to a very well-funded, to the tune of about $43 million dollars, uh, attempt by a group of organizations, uh, often dubbed the Islamophobic Network, Islamophobia Network, to create precisely what we are seeing today in our national rhetoric and dialogue. Yeah, no, I'm I'm so aware of that too. There, it's a very mixed picture, and I I'm always confused by these numbers because something that so many people have spoken to me about across the years that is also true about the post 9/11 era is uh, this incredible kind of interfaith kinship and collaboration and these rich Muslim-Christian dialogues that didn't exist before, that had this new energy and that that have this energy, that that has continued. Um, And the creation of very important organizations like mm -hmm. Muslims Muslims for Progressive Values, the Muslim Public Affairs Council. Right. Um, You know, you said something very, very true and interesting, which is that you know, almost uh, from what I've seen, about two thirds uh, of America's Muslim population is considered first generation. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, this is a very now. I should say first and foremost that you know Islam in the United States is goes all the way back to the beginning. The first Muslims right. that came to America were brought here on slave ships. Yeah, but. And then a third of Muslims are uh, African American, and that's That's an entire different story. And there are third, fourth, fifth generation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but um, particularly among immigrants, about Mm -hmm. two thirds are first generation. Yeah, Um, and so this is a very new wave of immigrants in the United States, and they have had enormous success. Muslims in America, uh, as an immigrant community, have the absolute highest levels of education, highest levels of literacy, highest levels of income. In fact, the medium um, household uh, income for a Muslim family is far greater than for a non-Muslim family in the United States. The advertising giant JWT not too long ago issued a report uh, valuing the American uh, Middle Eastern slash Muslim community, its annual combined income at around – uh, I think it was like $70 billion. I mean, enormous amount of wealth and education. Just go to Silicon Valley, look at these tech companies <laughs> and, and look at the founding board members and, and just count how many Mohammeds and Ali's <laughs> you see on those lists. So at the same time that there has been this enormous anti-Muslim surge in this country, Muslims themselves have had nothing but economic uh, and and uh, you know cultural and even political success, right? But but have had to constantly define themselves over against these images yes. that are just <laughs> ever present, right? And, and Tire, there's this self conscious so. yes, yeah. there's this there's this need to defend and this self consciousness about being Muslim. 
you know, that I think well, somebody like Ingrid Mattson was imagining, you know, what, what, would, what would the atmosphere have been if, you know, we hadn't been fighting against this, if it had oh, been all walking so into the future? And there's such a, there's, you know, a joke, particularly among young American Muslims about this idea that, you know, it's every Muslim's responsibility to apologize for everything that yeah. any Muslim, any in the world, anywhere in the world does. And, and you're seeing a real backlash to it. Yeah. Uh, you saw this uh, with the, the Twitter hashtags, not my religion or not my Islam or not in my name. Yeah. Uh, people who are just simply saying, look, I am tired of having to apologize for what somebody who shares neither my values, my religious beliefs, my cultural uh, uh, beliefs does somewhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I understand that. And then, you know, just returning to this, this theme of religion in the world and our collective encounter with religion in the world, there's, there's, there's been this kind of, I would say, tragic convergence of um, fear of Muslims and of Islam – which um, is understandable in part given these mm-hmm. messages and images that have come at people without much more information. And then also, as you say, um, a real Islamophobia that took root and was nurtured in some corners. And then added to that in a few years into uh, this century, this, the emergence of the new, new atheists, the new, new mm-hmm. atheism. Um, very a very strange convergence in some ways, I feel, because it's so intellectual and so liberal. And uh, well, it's not as liberal as well, they like to think. In it terms is. of self definition, right? Uh, yeah, and um, and kind of location on the cultural map um, in a in a in a surface way. Uh, and and you know, I'm just you. You end up being in the middle of that a lot. <laughs> it's recently risen to the surface again, um, you know. And if it's if it's if it's not you know, Christopher Hitchens, it's Bill Maher or it's Sam Harris. Or, uh, I mean, you know, you know all the names. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I I, I want to say that as an observer of religion myself, you know, what's kind of interesting to me about the new atheist movement that I don't. I don't think people talk about very much is that it, I don't really think it's very important. I don't think in history, you know, people are going to look back and see any period of time as the new atheist a moment. I think it kind of there were a lot of books sold for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um and then and then the culture has moved on and there's been a lot of really interesting kind of synthesis and integration and uh, and conversation across divides of religious and non-religious, secular and religious, and but it's still the new atheism still seems to stick or kind of become a lightning rod. Um, well, they get all the attention. They get all the like, attention, and with Islam like in particular, in any community. Yeah, well, is that look, how you I see think, it? You think, just, you just, yeah. Well, first of all, I think new atheism is the wrong term for this movement. The proper term is anti-theism mm-hmm. and that's not a new idea. Anti-theism goes all the way back to the 18th century. In fact, the very first time in which the word itself was defined by the Oxford English Dictionary was in 1833. Anti-theism is a, is a subset of atheism. To put it in its simplest way, an atheist doesn't believe in God and so therefore subscribes to no religion. An anti-theist believes religion itself is an insidious, inherent evil that must be 
excised from society, forcibly so, if necessary. It's irrational. It's backward that anyone who follows a religion uh, is not just wrong but stupid. Um, And that's what you get from these new anti-theist avatars like Hitchens who proudly referred to himself as an Mm anti-theist by the way Mm -hmm. um, and Dawkins and and Harris. And the reason I think that it's very important to call it what it is is because – I think the biggest fault of this movement is that it gives atheism such a bad name. Right. <laughs> Some of my intellectual heroes were atheists, Schopenhauer, Feuerbach, Freud, Marx. Um, you know, but the difference is that these individuals uh, criticized religion from a place of expertise. They actually understood what religion was and so they they criticized it um, as such. Or, Whereas or you don't- I think more importantly, they – they were talking about something and not just about what they disagreed with. There was a constructive right. – there was something being created and constructed rather than just torn down. Exactly. Whereas what you're seeing from the anti-theist movement is such a almost childishly simplistic conception of religion, um, you know, and and – and and it's deeply illiberal. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that nowadays, uh, you know, it's it's being couched as defensive liberalism. Well, you know, when Sam Harris says that ev- any Muslim or quote quote, and this is an actual quote, anyone who looks as though they could conceivably be a Muslim which I'm pretty sure means everybody on the planet, yeah. uh, should be profiled. That's not liberalism. That is not a liberal viewpoint. Um, and, and so I think that what you're seeing is – you're right, a, a minority view amongst atheists. And by the way, this has been proven out. The University of Tennessee did a, a very interesting study recently in which they discovered that of the roughly two and a half percent of Americans who self-describe as atheist, only 15 percent fall into the category of anti-theism. Right. And so what I hear from a lot of atheists, you know, and, which is ironic because I hear the same thing from a lot of Muslims, is that these guys don't represent me. Please mm-hmm. don't put me in the same camp. As these guys, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in religion. But I don't think that religious people are stupid. I don't think that religion should be forcefully removed from society. Um, and so I, I do believe that there is something quite extremist and radical about this movement that has to be rejected by atheists themselves in the same way I would say the exact same thing about extremists and radicals in any uh, community and, and it's up to the community itself to, right. to reject them. And and you've done some interesting conversation in public writing with Chris Steadman, who's a humanist and I think humanist and interfaith um, activist uh, and a prominent atheist. Yes, that's yeah. And but but an atheist who wants to say what 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 you know atheists and humanists can stand for uh, generatively instead of what they society. don't stand yes, for exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I've gotten an enormous amount of of criticism um, from atheists because I define um, you know atheism as a belief system like any other because mm-hmm. I define it as a set of propositions about the nature of reality, propositions that can be neither proven nor disproven, and the vitriol that I have received <laughs> from that statement. 
uh, it's surprising to me because a lot of people would say, well, that's ridiculous. Atheist, atheism isn't a belief system because atheists don't believe in anything. Hmm. Well, that's a horrible thing to say about hmm. an atheist and yeah, it's some, something right. certainly Chris Stedman would never say. Right, right. I mean – you know, to call yourself an atheist is to make certain conclusions about the nature of reality, where morals come from, how people oh. should respond well, to each also, other. Well, it's also not – I mean it doesn't say that much, just like it doesn't say that much to say you're Christian or Muslim or Jewish, right? right? It's very, what content does your life give it? And it doesn't actually say that much about what you believe or, or how you live. Which is precisely the point of the work that Chris Stedman and I did because what we wanted to show was that despite the fact that one you know, is an atheist and one is a person of faith, that when you come together and you know one another, what you realize is that your values are actually the same, that you mm-hmm. share the same values, that mm-hmm. context that you speak of, which is so important – uh, is quite similar despite the fact that you may use a different set of symbols to sort of uh, explain the nature of reality and your place in the world. Mm-hmm. And that you can you can engage in moral imagination together about creating the world you want to be living <laughs> Precisely. in. Precisely. Mm. I want to ask you – you know what? Here's what I wrote down in my notes. Muslim world. <laughs> I have to say, mm. third time, so sometimes, I don't know why people can't, journalists at least, can't figure out how to say this word. <laughs> Muslim. <laughs> right? I mean, even just, just look at the S, all right? So anyway, but Muslim world, Muslim world, which is just such a such an unfortunate phrase that's entered. It is. Uh, entered who would, the lexicon. Who would, ever say, who would ever say the phrase the Christian the world? Christian who world. would say that? Well, they might say it, but it wouldn't take them very far in the conversation because they'd be forced to become more specific. Um, and, well, right? again, it's, it, mm-hmm. it goes back to that fundamental error that we started with, which is that no person in their right mind would possibly think that Christianity is one thing, that the Christianity that yeah. one experiences in suburban Chicago is the same Christianity that one would experience in the hills of Guatemala or in South Korea or in Eritrea. Yeah. Everyone would would just by nature recognize that Christianity is infinitely diverse. It's an ecosystem. And yet, yeah. and yet mm-hmm. it's such a leap of logic for them to think the same of another religion like Islam, yeah. a religion of 1.6 billion people, a religion that exists in every corner of the world that yeah. is as diverse, if not even more diverse, as yeah. than Christianity. But I mean, that's why these conversations are important, and we have to have them over and over again. Because you know, one thing we do we know about ourselves physiologically now, as we understand our brains, is that we um, instinctively imagine less diversity in the other group than we know right. there to be. Like we all know that in our own group, you know, starting with our own family. Um, there are people we love and have lots in common with, and there are people who drive us crazy, and we just know how to get along with them, right? But we imagine somehow that there's that uh, this this uh, homogeneity um, well, in others. And that's and when I say the the process of otherization, that's exactly yeah. what I mean. Yeah. You know, the easiest way to define yourself is in opposition to another. It may be very difficult to say what it means to be American. But it's very easy to define what it means to be American if you can just find someone to define it against, yeah. whether it's Russians or communists or nowadays Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. And it, because a lot of the things that come at people in the news are 
fear-inducing, and that just that just uh, activates the, of the that. news. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so let me just ask you the question this way: If I if I say the phrase "the Muslim world," um, you know, how do you begin to make sense? What comes to mind for you? What are the connotations that are contained in that phrase? You know, how would you start to illuminate that and unpack? Well, it? the connotations are that there is something monolithic, fixed, right, but if and you were, static. Right, I know. But if Islam. you if you if I asked you to take that phrase apart, you know, to start with that phrase and say, you know, the only way this makes sense, I mean, this these are all the things that come to mind for you when you think the Muslim right. world. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is Could you is redeem that the phrase? I'm asking you. I have tried <laughs> I have tried my hardest to just excise the phrase from my vocabulary uh, yeah. altogether. Well I have too. And yeah. anytime and anytime anyone uses it, mm-hmm. I try to get them to stop using mm-hmm. it. Um, I talk a lot about Muslim-majority countries. Yeah. Um, or, you know, that that's, I think, one way of putting it. Um, but the truth of the matter is that there is very little that Muslims around the world have in common with each other. I mean, people will say, well, they all, you know, uh, believe in the Quran, but that doesn't really make any sense. The Quran is a scripture. It's not something to believe in. It's It's, you know, a... Uh, you can see that you can call it the divine word of God if you want to, but it's sort of you know a, a, a uh, way of uh, it's a moral code. It's a it's a way of living your life, and so people are going to come at it quite differently depending on their own prejudices and preconceived notions. You can say, well, but don't they all pray the same way? Well, no, actually, they don't all pray the same way. The Shia pray three times. The Sunni pray five times. Um, there is you know, uh, some, some difference in the rituals of the prayer. Well, don't they all um, follow Islamic law? No, there's no such thing as Islamic law. There are six different schools of Islamic law, and even within those schools, there's enormous diversity of opinion uh, and idea. Well, don't they all believe the, the same thing? Don't they all believe, you know, at the very least, the, the profession of faith, there is no God but God and Muhammad is God's messenger? Yes, but they all, many of them think of that phrase in vastly different ways. The Sufis yeah. see that not as a statement of monotheism, but as a statement about the very nature of reality, the very nature of God. So, you know, yeah. as a scholar yeah. of religions, I just I can't say these phrases like Muslim world okay, that's with any good. kind of yeah, you know, no, reality to it. I think that's that's good. That's helpful. Let me, let me truly, truly, mm-hmm. Krista, mm-hmm. I have trouble even saying the word Islam. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the scholar in me wants to add an S, wants to say mm-hmm. Islams. Yeah. Um, but. But, you know, obviously that's if we're having conversations and particularly the conversations that I have with the media, those kinds of things, you know, have to be much more simplified. And so, mm-hmm. look, even I use the word, the, the phrase Muslim world sometimes and, and I try my hardest not to. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, and, you know, as I said when we started speaking, I, I want to I, I love your broad view of history and of time and um, I think that's so valuable to bring to how we take in the news these days. Um, having said that, you know, there's this terrible irony that um, for everyone who's been trying to distinguish between people who do, you know, terrible acts in the name of Islam and get all the coverage, mm-hmm. trying to distinguish between that and the daily lived piety of, you know, 1.6 billion people, of almost all of those other, the rest of those 1.6 billion people. Um, Then there's this terrible tragedy that at this moment in time, 13 years after 9-11, you have this awful group 
which mm-hmm. calls itself the Islamic State, you know, which just uh, tr- triggers a lot of things. Like I mean, the language is, mm-hmm. is powerful. Oh, absolutely. And they're, they're masters at that, too. I mean, the very notion of the caliphate, I think, is fascinating. There is no religious authority in the world that accepts uh, the Islamic State's you know, self-proclaimed caliphate. Mm-hmm. And yet the very fact that they have called it that, they've done something that Muslims mm-hmm. have just have never done, have never dared to do, uh, the symbolic significance of that cannot be, Can it be um, over- exaggerated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here's a tweet. This is on your Twitter feed. Uh, speaking to the head of, head of ISIS or one of those key figures, hey, so-called caliph, try reading rules of war established by first caliph. <laughs> You know, the guy you named yourself after. Um, <laughs> yes, Abu Bakr. Yeah. Uh, because that every indication is that uh, of all the um, Purit- Puritan fanatical um, – I, I don't like the word Islamist uh, either, but Islamist movements, um, this seems to be the least religiously informed. Yes. Well, first of all – they're not Islamists. They are jihadists. Mm-hmm. These are two very different things. Islamism is a nationalist ideology. It's essentially uh, the Islamic form of the same religious nationalism that has gripped so many people of faith throughout the world. We in the United States have our own Christian nationalists. We have representatives of Christian nationalists running for president uh, You know, almost every cycle, whether it's Michelle Bachman or whether it's Mike Huckabee. These are people who claim that America is a Christian nation founded on Christian values and that it should return okay, to those Okay, but you're values. really going to get in trouble if we have you comparing Huckabee and, and Michelle Bachman to, <laughs> to Abu to Bakr. <laughs> to No, to ISIS. not to Abu Bakr because ISIS is a jihadist organization, Oh, okay, so you're saying Islamist this is what makes him – all right, all right. But I am absolutely 100 percent comparing Michelle Bachman and Mike Huckabee to the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood right. in Egypt right. is an Islamist organization. Right. They believe that Egypt is a Muslim country founded on Muslim principles, that it has to be aligned with those values and principles. Mm-hmm. They are religious nationalists and they're not alone. In India, the BJP, the largest group of religious nationalists in the world, believe that India is a Hindu country, that it's based on Hindu values and it has to be – it has to sort of purport to those values. The fastest growing Zionist movement in, in, in uh, Israel – are what's often referred to as either religious Zionists or Messianic Zionists whose loyalty is not to the secular state but to the biblical land. All of this is to say that Islamism as religious nationalism is neither unique to Islam nor is it all that strange or weird. It comes in enormous diversities. Mm-hmm, Hamas mm-hmm, is an Islamist organization. Mm-hmm. And it's also so there's a the, spectrum of violent and and, and Well, not necessarily. Fanatical, but, not, but nonviolent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the AKP, the ruling party in Turkey, is an Islamist yeah. organization. Right. And they are certainly not violent or fanatical. Right. The opposite of Islamism is jihadism. Jihadism, far from being a nationalist movement, is an anti-nationalist movement. Mm. They are not interested in a nation state. On the contrary, they want to rid the world of all nation states. They want to erase all borders, all boundaries. They want to reconstitute the globe as a single world order under their control. Al-Qaeda is a jihadist organization. 
Right. ISIS is a jihadist organization, not an Islamist organization. In fact, these two groups see themselves uh, as enemies. They they right. they loathe right. one another right. because the jihadists don't want to just get rid of every. They want to get rid of every state, whether it's Islamic or not. They're they don't competitors. Care. Very, yes. Right. Yes. The yeah. very concept of statehood is anathema to Islam. Right. And what you find, and you're absolutely right about this, is that among jihadist organizations, which tend to appeal to people of of greater education, greater socioeconomic needs, that's not unusual, by the way, if what you are after is the reconstitution of the world as a single global order, well, you have to have a certain level of education and intelligence for that to be appealing to you. Um, but most importantly, what you see is a real lack of religious literacy yeah, right. among Basic these literacy. organizations. Yeah. Um, and reams and reams have been written about this very subject yeah. um, and, and why that is. But it, it is important to sort of label these organizations correctly if we're going to deal with them mm-hmm. in the right way. The sort of knee-jerk notion of Hamas is ISIS, Hezbollah is al-Qaeda, they're all the same – is not just illogical, it's dangerous. Right, right. Because then you're assuming that they require the same response, Mm -hmm. and they most certainly do not. Mm -hmm. I don't really remember what your question was. No, it was great. It's so much. (laughs) And now I'm aware we're kind of running out of time. I want to to ask you just briefly about, with your broad view of time, how you see – I don't know what we're calling the Arab Spring now. I mean, I, you know, but, but the Arab Spring and the 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 the, the evolutionary, the development, the you know, the how you look at that and think about that, uh, and you know, the generations ahead. Um, I think the Arab Spring was a direct result of the Reformation process yeah. that I am talking about, right. and it's a process that's continuing. What you saw. And those millions and millions of of young Arabs who poured onto the street in country after country was a desire to no longer be bound by the institutions, either political or religious, um, of their worlds. It was a desire to simply speak for themselves, to interpret uh, their scripture, their faith, their religious experience for themselves, to be able to combine these desires for freedom and independence and democracy and a voice with their religious identities. And while there has been a great deal of rollback in a lot of these Arab Spring countries back to despotism and dictatorship, that sentiment has not died down in the least. And I think that if you're asking me to take a much broader look about the course that the Muslim-majority states of the Middle East are taking, I think it's inevitable that you are going to see that uh, that transition towards greater individuality, greater freedom, greater independence, a refusal to allow the state to speak for oneself any longer, an insistence that one has a voice in the decisions that so affect the individuals in that place. That... The, the, you know, I often say the lid has been taken off, yeah. and there's no putting it back, regardless right. of how much violence uh, the state uses. These individuals, these young people, 75 percent of whom are under the age of 30, are not going to put up with the the old structures any longer. Right. Uh, 
whether it's religious structures or political structures. What they need is assistance from the outside world. They haven't received that assistance in the same way that I think that they deserve. But I I do truly and honestly believe that change, dramatic change – is inevitable. In fact, mm-hmm. it's it's already underway. It's underway and it's still ahead of us. Yeah, I mean that's another thing we we have such a we have no memory of how messy and how 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 uh, <laughs> you know the our first fifty hundred years of American democracy were that there's no direct line. Uh, I had a nice conversation with one of the the um, original Egyptian um, youth activists that launched um, you know. Uh, the the Tahrir Square protests, um, uh, and many years later, we in the in the West just think, well, that that was a complete failure. The Arab yeah, Spring right. became the right. you know Muslim, and it's and it's over now. And I was interviewing him for something, and he said, you know, I feel very awkward talking about this. And I said, why? He said, you're asking me to talk about a revolution that is still. Ongoing yeah. that we're in the yeah. midst of right now. I know yeah. that in your mind the revolution is over, but that's not what it feels like when yeah. you're in Egypt. And that's it's what still history very much going. That's the story history would tell us as well if we were Precisely. paying attention. I just want to ask you. You know, you have talked about um, the the great question. You know, can Islam now be used to establish a genuinely liberal democracy in the Middle East and beyond? Can a modern Islamic state reconcile reason and revelation? And, you know, for all that you've said and the persuasive case you've made that uh, that there's nothing extraordinary about about this religion's uh, historical trajectory, um, I, I do want to ask you about how you think the particularities of Islam, uh, the inner life of Islam, and I mean the spiritual and aesthetic particularities, will influence, um, you know, the how this reconciliation of reason and revelation that will be part of Islamist reformation, as you call it, how it will be distinctive because of the nature of this faith? Mm, it's a very good question. I do think it's important to recognize that a third of all Muslims live in democracies, that of the top 10 most populous Muslim countries in the world, I believe, I think six or even seven of them uh, are representative democracies. So this notion that Islam can't yeah. be reconciled with democracy is is empirically false. But you bring up a very good point, which is that there's no such thing as a single vision of democracy, that it's going to be reflective of the values, the culture of the people who make it up. Right. And there is something distinctive. There is something truly distinctive in that regard when it comes to Islam as opposed to at the very least Protestant Christianity. And it goes back to this question of individualism. Um, There is, regardless of the tectonic changes that are taking place before our eyes within Islam, something deeply and profoundly communal about the faith Mm -hmm. um, in a way that one does not see so much with, say, Protestant Christianity. Less so with, of course, Catholic Christianity, but not so much with Protestant Christianity, which is so steeped in this concept of individualism, the individual over the community. Whereas if I were to say it in a very general sense, you get sort of an opposite sense in, in a lot of Muslim Um, societies, the idea that the community is more important than the individuals. And so a lot of the laws tend to reflect that sense. And certainly as these democracies begin to arise 
in these formerly autocratic, dictatorial um, regions, you are going to see something distinctive about that democracy which reflects the communal values, the communal worldview Hmm. um, that Islam in many ways represents, how that defines itself in the formation of laws and and customs. uh, That's a much more complex question. But I do think that that is something to be cognizant of and that that one shouldn't ignore. I don't think it in any way uh, lessens the value or the function of a democratic society in a Muslim majority state. But I do think that it does make it somewhat distinctive, as you say. That's really interesting to think about. Thank you for that. Um, so I, so you know, we need to finish. Just maybe two more questions. I, um, sure. if you think about, uh, let's see how to. Um, we talked about how in a globalized world. Islam's well. Let me just back up. It, a point you've made that just seems so important for people in in the U.S. and in the West to keep hearing. I mean, you are you are not at all. I mean, and you know, I, I probably need to. I want you to say this in the context of this conversation that you know you you have condemned the actions of ISIS, for example, in the absolute strongest terms, and talked about the rightness of of. Um, of a, a kind of military reprisal against the, those kinds of militants. Um, mm-hmm. um, Though it is funny that I have to actually I know, preface my I know, comments it's on just, that. I know. But I, but I get it. You know what I mean? I need to get that on the record, um, whether it's in the show or not. But at this, but but also what you point out, and again, that just feels m- more important to me to point out, is that, you know, at the same time that, there are atrocities, very highly publicized atrocities happening in the world today in the name of Islam, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly. It's also Muslims who are on the front line of combating that and Muslims who are on the front line of that violence for the most part. Yeah. Well, I think that I understand the desire for Muslims and indeed for any community of faith to reject extremists within their community as not them. You hear this all the time, Muslims saying, you know, ISIS is not Islamic, that Mm -hmm. their their actions are so outrageous and so beyond the pale, so against what Islam stands for that they are simply not Muslims. And you hear Christians say the same about extremists in in Christianity and Jews say the same about extremists in Judaism. It's a natural response. The problem is, is that It's not a very valid one. I mean, particularly when it comes to Islam, as I said earlier, no one gets to say who is and who is not a Muslim. A Muslim, by definition, is anyone who calls himself a Muslim. And so if ISIS says, if a member of ISIS says that they're, you know, he's a Muslim, then he's a Muslim. And if he says that he is carrying out these atrocities in the name of Islam, let's just go ahead and take his word for it rather than sort of denying that. I think the danger when we do so is that we we sort of try to brush it off. We try to pretend that, that extremism is not a problem yeah. because these extremists aren't really part of us. Right. And so we can just ignore them. 
but of course, we can't ignore them. We do need to deal with the fact that there is a very real problem of violence and extremism among Muslims in large parts uh, of Muslim-majority countries, in particular the Middle East, mm-hmm. and that many of those actions are done in the name of Islam and that there is something within Islam, something within the Quran that that propels those people in these heinous, barbaric actions. Let's not deny that. At the same time, considering that the people that ISIS is, are killing are also Muslims. Yeah, for the most and part. And that the people yeah. who are fighting ISIS are also Muslims. Yeah. ISIS's Islamic identity may be a fact that we shouldn't deny, but it doesn't really say that much about yeah. Islam yeah. Uh, as a global religion. And, you know, and here, and, yeah, when you want to yeah, finish. Well, it's just so, so you know, if if we see you know ISIS as you know I think a blip you know it's it's a, it's a, it's some small chapter in this big picture you paint of of this reformation that started a century ago that is ongoing that also includes um, the ferment that's still there that's come out of the Arab Spring includes so many things um, but it is in you know it, it what. We it's easy for the West to think about, you know, military attacks on the militants. It's Mm -hmm. harder, you know, to the extent that, yes, as we talked about earlier, Islam's even to the extent that this is largely an internal crisis, it's an internal crisis happening in a globalized world. So everyone has a stake in it. Right. How do you talk to, you know, everyone else who's outside and has a stake in this? Like what what can be the role of Global citizens, um, you know, and I and I mean as concrete as you can be, you know, where people live, because the other problem about the terrible headlines is they just turn people inward, right? They just don't think there's yes. anything they could possibly do. At an individual level, the most important thing. I think, is to build relationships with Muslims. If you are just sitting here listening to this broadcast and you're just living in, you know, rural Iowa and you think, well, I don't want to think this way. I want to actually have a much broader view. I could give you books to read. I could give you websites to look at, but that's not going to help. What's going to help is just finding a Muslim and getting to know that person uh, as an individual because it's relationships that transforms our perceptions at a nation at a national level mm-hmm. i think it's very important for our administration our political leaders not to feed in to this rabid islamophobia for their mm-hmm. own political gain i mean it's not a coincidence that these kinds of anti-muslim hysterics always seem to reach fevered pitch every time we're at some kind of an election season <laughs> right right um that's not that's right. not by accident right um and instead, trying to actually recognize that the 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 f- religious fabric of this country, you know, the very purpose of this country was built upon the notion of religious freedoms, and that the denial of those freedoms to any single one of us mm-hmm. is a threat to the very nature, the very Dam- values upon which this us. country yeah. was was born yeah. at a global level. And you asked me to be specific, so I'm trying to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At no, a global level, I think that it's very important to differentiate the actions of extremists from the beliefs 
that they may share in common with a larger community. This again is the principal fallacy of the anti-theist movement mm-hmm. is that they believe that there is some kind of one-to-one correlation between belief and behavior, something that's been right, right. disproven repeatedly right. by social scientists. Right. Uh, when someone acts in a certain way, they are not – they're acting that way as a, as a result of a – complex interplay of mm-hmm. factors which include their religion certainly but also their politics their social views their mental state all of these things yeah. but when we refuse to acknowledge that what we do is that we taint an entire community of faith according to the actions of you know certain extremists in yeah. that community with whom they may share some measure of belief right that's such and, an important distinction and yeah. most importantly most importantly We need to begin to address some of the fundamental grievances that lead to these extremist actions in the first place. Part of the reason why ISIS has had such an enormous success in drawing particularly young Muslims, men and women, to their cause is because they have set themselves up as – uh, the addresser of their grievances, whatever those grievances may be. Now, in the in the case of ISIS, they're quite symbolic. They mm-hmm. they use these grievances as nothing more than a net to draw people to their cause. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a powerful net, and those grievances may be. The identity crisis that a young British Muslim right. uh, tends to feel, you know, feeling not neither British nor Pakistani nor 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 Muslim. It could be social. It could be economic grievances. These are real things, and that they do and they're provide human things. They're human, they're human things. Perfectly said. These yeah. human issues yeah. that often result in a. Uh, an identity crisis, a a sense of being lost, looking for something to give you value, to give you meaning and being susceptible to this message of someone in the middle of this utopian fantasy that they are building, which is what what precisely what ISIS represents, uh, that becomes very appealing to to people who are uh, unmoored by by their societies. And mm-hmm. so those things are important. They need to be addressed. They're not the cure for extremism. I'm not sure if there is a cure for yeah. extremism. Right. But they really do at the very least take away the appeal of extremism as a viable outlet right. for these these grievances that are unmet. So I just want to make sure can I do I can I one more question am I all right? Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. good, good. And I I just want to make sure that from the engineers. Okay. So this is just um, so good and important. So just, you know, my final question to you would be, um, you know, what, 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 what makes you despair right now? And, and, and what gives you the most hope? What makes me despair is the state of our media. And again, I say this as part of that. Media. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I joke about it a lot, but the purpose of the media in this country is not to give you information but to sell you products. I have sat in a lot of editorial meetings uh, for particularly cable news broadcasters and I have sat in um, writers' rooms for you know late night dramas, soap opera dramas. I can't tell you the difference between those two rooms. Um, They function almost exactly in the same way and that shouldn't come as a surprise because they both have the exact same purpose, 
getting you to the commercial so you buy things. Um, and it's pathetic at a time in which we have an almost infinite number of media outlets available to us, the ability to find out what's going on in real time on the other side of the world that we have instead become so lazy uh, and compartmentalized that we you know, only listen to the, the sort of echo chamber that we feel comfortable in. So that, that despairs me. Mm-hmm. But what really gives me hope is individuals. And it goes back to what I've been saying throughout this interview, which is the key to all of this is relationships. Because I know individuals in the US, around the world, in multiple religious faiths and people with no faith at all. And I recognize that the values that these individuals share are identical, that they are struggling with the same struggles, they have the same hopes and the same aspirations, um, that they are horrified with the way that the world is progressing and they are actively trying to do something about it. And when I experience that, I am energized. I am filled with optimism. Um, And I see the – and also I have to say because I have a much more historical perspective on things, I see where we've been and so I think I have a better sense of where we're going. We have a progress of society that is unstoppable. People, I think, are afraid of fundamentalism because they see that it's resurgent. But we have to remember that fundamentalism is a reactionary phenomenon, not an independent one. It is a reaction to the natural progress of society. And so when I see fundamentalism surge – I know that what is really happening is that the natural progress of society is surging and that fundamentalism is just reacting to it. So I choose to focus on the progress, not the reaction to it. Okay. That's great. Um, I've so enjoyed this. Um, thank Me you too. so much. <laughs> Me too. Thanks. Really I energizing. Really enjoyed it. Like, I, I really do love your show. I really I, I love what you're doing and I'm I'm just delighted to have been a part of it. Well, um, I I was really interested. I looked at your the Aslan Media page, and I'm, oh, yes. I'm really fascinated. Are you are you spending? But do you have time to do that? Is that? I mean, how are you? I have a a army of young people. You do, yeah. Who do that for That's me? That's really I, interesting. It's really fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and it's an attempt to simply bring greater knowledge and awareness of yeah. you know the and the news, the entertainment, telling the more art, of the culture, story, music. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, do you know Scott Atron? Do you know his work about young people? We just did a show with him. You might you might enjoy that interview, and he's gotten a lot of reaction, even like all over in the Middle East. Um, huh. He works. No, I don't. He's an anthropologist, and he works with. He just has such a refreshing perspective. I mean, he basically has spent all kinds of time over the last fifteen years, like listening to young people and listening in particular inside um uh, also to people like he he's been in the he's talked to like the Madrid bombers and the the oh. extended family and friends of the 911 but also he's come to understand like what makes young people more susceptible and what also enables some people to not be vulnerable i mean of course more people to not be vulnerable which is not something we talk about he's yeah. really amazing his work is really amazing on these the human dynamics of this and it just feels to me like it's it's rich for your for I'll this check stuff. it out yeah, yeah and he has this book great. called talking to the enemy uh it's something like uh, faith, 
Brotherhood and the Unmaking of Terrorists. Anyway, I was thinking about it. But this, I'm just really, I, I'm, I, I have obviously been following you all these years, but it was great to really dive in. So um, I'm glad we have this connection. We'll let you know what's, what's happening with this. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Fantastic. Right. Thanks, yeah. Krista. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.